sung of the glory of the Word of God. Now hear the Word of God as we return to uh, the Gospel of John. I'll be reading chapter 5, verses uh, 31 to the end of the chapter. And these are the words of God. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and the shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive." How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? These are the words of God. Let's pray. Father, these are the words of your Son, our Lord Jesus we would know him. We would grow in our knowledge of him. And so that we ask that you open up our hearts by your spirit, that the word of God, that Jesus and his word would dwell in us and dwell in us deeply, that we might know you and desire you and delight in you and glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Well, if you weren't here last Lord's Day, then you're being thrown into the middle here of a longer discourse in John chapter 5, where Jesus is giving a defense, a defense for his, uh, through a formal argument of his divinity and his sonship, of, of him being God, of him being of the same essence as God, and of his relationship, his special unique relationship to God the Father as God the Son. And, and, and the fact that uh, basically the, the Sanhedrin or the Jewish leaders of his days are not recognizing him, are not, are, are not re, uh, going along with or following this declaration is putting them in great jeopardy, but also is making them so angry with Jesus that they are see, seeking all the more, it says in this passage, to kill him. Not just to persecute him, not just to send him off. They already, here just in John chapter 5, they already want him dead. They want him out of the way. And Jesus has, has given this formal, uh, uh, this, this formal, like, as though he was in a court of law, defense for who he is. And now he calls the witnesses. Now he calls witnesses to the stand to, to verify uh, what he has said. 
The, the divine testimony, the greater witness that he refers to here, look again at verse 36 and 37. He says, but I have a greater witness. So he's going to point beyond himself, beyond John the Baptist, beyond his works, to the greater witness that he says. He says, I have a greater witness, verse 36, than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor have seen him. The Father, God, you Jews who believe that you're worshiping this Father, he has testified of me and you do not hear me. You do not listen to him, the one that you think that you're listening to. And so he is he's continuing to ratchet this argument up right in front of them about who he is and what they are not doing with what is right before their eyes. And, and so he, he's, he's saying that the greater witness he has is the Father, and then he brings forth three supplementary witnesses showing forth the Father's witness, John the Baptist, the signs of Christ's works, and the Old Testament scriptures, all the voice of the Father in essence, the witness of the Father to whom um, uh, Jesus is. Now, as we walk through this text, as, as we go through this text, I'd like you to keep this kind of question in mind. I want you to think about those times when someone has said to you, and maybe more importantly, when you have said to yourself, I just can't believe the claims about Christianity and Jesus. I'm just not sure that the evidence is clear. Have you heard that from someone? Have you heard someone say, I, I just, I'm not exactly sure I believe the, the claims of Jesus. What, what am I to do with these things? Or have you in your own heart at times remember in the past or maybe this morning, I have doubts. I'm not sure I hold to the claims of who Jesus says he is. I might be interested in, in, in being on the side of those who are saying, who do you think you are, God or something? Jesus would say, well, as a matter of fact, yes. And he goes on to give a defense for that. He, he's answering that kind of question. For the well-studied Sanhedrin, who knew their scriptures... Uh, among them, or the confident agnostic among us. These three witnesses are brought forth in this passage here to, who testify themselves to the Father's greater testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. And so let's walk through that. I'm going to give a quick overview. You can keep your eyes on the text if you'd like and just kind of get through here. But, it, but again, this just overview to walk through this argument that Jesus is making. The law required the witness of two or three witnesses in order to establish a fact. Um, verse 31, Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true, or the word could be translated valid. Um, you, you can't give witness to your own testimony. That's not, that's not considered a valid testimony. So that's what he begins. He's already referring back to the law, the Old Testament law established that two or three witnesses need to be brought forth in order to establish a fact. This is, the, this is the way that we have established our own laws in this land. You, somebody cannot just make a charge against uh, a someone and be considered to be a fact. There needs to be two or three witnesses to establish that fact in a court of law. Jesus is using that same kind of argument here. It's not my own testimony is not, is not valid. He's not saying um, I'm not true, but he's saying that if I'm going to establish these facts, there are other testimonies that need to be brought forth. Jesus knew, though, that there was another who bore witness of him and his claim. He says this in verse 32. 
John the Baptist was, was a witness. He's not referring to John as that greater witness. But he begins by saying John the Baptist was a witness. He says, in fact, he was a burning and shining light that you enjoyed, that you took notice of. There were great revivals that were going on at the time during the, during the years that John the Baptist had his ministry, up until the time that he was then arrested for saying just a little bit too much against the governor of the land, Herod. Well, so, uh, and, and then he is put to death. But it was John the Baptist who testified to Jesus. You recall in, in chapter 1, it's John the Baptist who says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That was his testimony. That was his declaration. And yet Jesus does not lay his argument simply on the testimony of man, verses 33 through 35. I, I, it's not necessary for me, he says, for there to be a testimony of a man. I have a greater testimony than that. John was a great testimony. The works which the Father has sent the Son to do then also bear witness. And particularly they bear witness, it says, that the Father sent the Son. The verses that I read, 36 and 37. And of course, as these favorite verses in, in the Gospel of John uh, attest to this. For God so loved the world, God the Father so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the virgin birth of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, all of the miracles that, that are done before, are, 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 are the Father sending the Son to reveal his love for the world. And, and that, that this Son, this, this Jesus, is in fact his Son. And of course, John um, um, ends his gospel at the end of, uh, of chapter 20, before the little epilogue in 21, he says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And he's referring particularly to the signs that he's been laying out in, in the first half of the Gospel of John. He says, if, uh, there were many more signs that Jesus did, but these ones I've, I have pointed out so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Back to our passage, the scriptures give testimony to him, but his listeners do not have the word abiding in them, he says, nor are they willing to come to him, verses 38 through 40. Problem is not that men will not honor those who claim to come in the name of God. They are loyal to themselves and not to God. And so they will not seek the honor that comes only from God. Again, in verse 41, he says, you don't have a problem receiving honor from certain men, but you're having problem receiving honor from me. Or, honor when, uh, or honoring me when God, when God points to me and to my message. Now, why would that be? Why is it so hard to give honor to this particular Christ, this particular Messiah, but it might have been easier to give um, honor to another Messiah that would come? One of the, one of the, one, part of the reason would be because he is so offensive. This message, this gospel message, has such an offense to it. Paul, Paul writes in Philippians of the scandal of the gospel. There's no good news without really, really bad news. And the really, really bad news is, is that you don't want Jesus as your Messiah. Because in order to have Jesus as your Messiah, you're going to have to admit, you're going to have to confess your need for a Messiah. And your need for a Messiah is going to have to be confessed based on the fact that you know you're under judgment, the judgment of God. Now, Sanhedrin, they, 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 that is, we're not under the judgment of God. We are the ruling Jews. We are the people of God. We are the ones who have the book. We are the ones who keep, the, keep um, tidy uh, notes on all of the scriptures and make sure we have all these different ways of making sure we keep the law. We keep God's law. What do you mean that, that we need a savior? 
And so they turn away from such a Messiah who claims that, no, in fact, they are filthy, that they are sinners, that they are self-righteous, that they have murder in their hearts. We don't have murder in their hearts, they say, as they conspire to murder Jesus. Right? We don't blaspheme God as they blaspheme the Son of God. You see that? This is, this is the offense of the gospel, and Jesus is referring to that. And they, they do not seek the honor that comes from the only God, but the God of their own making. They act like they trust in Moses, it says at the end. They say, you, you, say, you say that you like Moses, that you believe Moses, that you follow the writings of Moses, but you don't follow the writings of Moses. I don't even have to accuse you. Moses accuses you. Words of Deuteronomy and the great words of judgment of Deuteronomy that, that if you do not follow my word, if you do not follow after me, you follow after false gods, I will bring nothing but complete judgment upon you. Your land and your city and your temple, it'll be decimated. Jesus says, you believe Moses? You say you believe Moses. Moses is the one who accuses you. Well, again, as I said last time, they don't take this very well. Uh, The the Sanhedrin don't take it very well. But it's a good question to ask yourself, why is it they don't take it very well? Jesus is saying that, that what he's talking about here is enough. It's enough evidence. It's enough of an argument to show that Jesus is God that he is the son of God, that he's been, sent by the, he's been sent by the Father, and he's been sent by the Father to provide salvation for the world. What's your problem with the argument? What's your problem? I want to break it out here and talk about the testimony of man, the testimony of works, and the testimony of the Father in his word, and challenge our hearts, and challenge the, the, the idea of giving evidence for Christ, that evidence that is going to absolutely demand one to turn in faith, and how that doesn't happen so often. So first of all, the testimony of man. Jesus did not need the testimony of John to self-consciously know who he was. That's part of what he's saying. I didn't need John to tell me that I was the Lamb of God. When, when John says, there's Jesus, he's the Lamb of God, Jesus didn't go, what, me? No, Jesus knew, the de- he self-consciously already knew who he was. John was giving testimony to others of who he was. The, the preceding verses that we, we looked at last week emphasized Jesus' intimate and eternal knowledge of and relationship with the Father. Holy begotten from all eternity past, Jesus was not a created friend of God the Father who was lonely, but rather proceeded as a father from the Son, but, but eternally in such a way that they were of the same essence, they're the same, they're God, Jesus is God of God, as we say in, uh, in the Nicene Creed but also uh, submissive or subservient to the Father and to the Father's will. Not that Jesus had a different will, but that he came forth from the Father as the word and the message of the Father with the very will of the Father. They're they're not in contradiction with one another at all. They're not in, in any kind of a contest. Well, so this is what he was talking about in the previous verses. Jesus and the Father have already self-consciously known who they are. Jesus self-consciously has always known who he is. John's testimony, Jesus mentions the Baptist testimony, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the hearers. John's testimony, and the reason he points to this is because John's testimony was strong and well-respected by the general public. In fact, he uses this to defend himself as they're coming at at him later on after he has uh, come into Jerusalem in that final Passion Week. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. 
Here you'll see the, the power of John the Baptist's testimony is, is so great that the Sanhedrin who don't want to listen to him, the Pharisees who don't want to listen to him and give John the Baptist or his previous testimony any credit have to be very careful because of the crowd. In, uh, in uh, Matthew 21, verse 23, it says, Now when, they, when, when Jesus came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, and I wonder if Jesus in essence uh, is in some sense tired of that question. He's already answered those questions. He's already told them these things. This is later on in his, in his, uh, in his work now. This is that final week while he is in, the, uh, uh, the, in Jerusalem, the week that he is actually crucified. So Jesus answers, verse 24, and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, I'm going to test whether or not you really want to know. And I'm going to test that because I'm going to ask you a question first. And when I ask that question, if you answer me, then I will answer your question. Here's my question. He says, the baptism of John, where was it from? Was it from heaven or from men? Was that baptism, was that, baptism that testimony, that witness of John the Baptist, was that from heaven or was that just his own idea? Was that, just, was that just a gathering of a bunch of people that got a little too excited about religious things for a while? Or was it actually from heaven? And they reasoned among themselves and they said, well, if we say from heaven... Then he will say to us, why then do you not believe him? Because John was the one who said, behold, the Lamb of God. So we can't say that he's from heaven. We'll say, but, but if we say from men, we fear the multitude. For all count John as a prophet. John had a reputation. And the crowd, the crowds, the, the followers of John the Baptist and his teaching were great. There was a great multitude. They didn't want to stand up and say, um, no, John, John wasn't a prophet. They, they were trying to, d- d- to get around it as much as they could. They weren't the ones that put John to death. That was Herod. That was something that he did. Can we just, can we just lay to rest the, the testimony of John? So they answered Jesus and they said, well, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Checkmate. Checkmate. So this is what's going on. God used John's witness to bring many to faith in Christ. There were actually many who followed John, listened to him when he said, behold, the Lamb of God, and they left John and they began following Jesus. In fact, in John 1, 7, that's what we were told. This man came, John the Baptist came for a witness, a testimony, to bear witness of the light that all through him, that is through, through, through the witness of, of John, they might believe. Remember those first 18 verses. I'm going to say this over and over again. These first 18 verses, the prologue of John's gospel, give us really all the themes that then get, get, get opened up and laid out for us um, throughout the gospel. Well, this is, so, so why does, Jesus doesn't need, he says, I don't need the witness of John the Baptist, but I'm going to tell you about the witness of John the Baptist, because through the witness of John the Baptist, many believed. It is a testimony to the truth of my declaration. And this is important for you to think about, for us to think about. The personal witness of someone you know and trust is a powerful tool that God uses to bring another to faith in Jesus Christ. Many times, that is exactly how someone comes to Christ. From the personal witness of somebody that you trust. Uh, Think about this for a minute. How do you know who another person is? 
you, there's, some, there's somebody standing here after church, and you want to know who they are. You go up and you ask who they are and what they do or where they live, right? And then they tell you, and it, it's their testimony. They look a little, they look a little different, and you wonder if it's true because you don't know them. But what if instead your good friend that you trust or your spouse or somebody that you know and, and somebody you trust really well introduces you to that person? Well, now all of a sudden you believe that you believe that person is really who that person says he is because the person that you trust has given witness to that fact. You see that? And, and this is oftentimes exactly the position that you find yourself in in relationships in the world around you. You have people around you who, if, if they heard the claims of Christ just in the open air in some way, they, they, maybe they read something or they hear a message somewhere, they, they think, yeah, but I don't, it looks a, little, looks a little weird to me. But you have a relationship with them. You have, you, you, have, you have given to them in such a way that they honor you. They trust you. And if you walk up to them and you say, let me introduce you to Jesus Christ, all of a sudden there's a lot more to that testimony because of the trust and honor that they already have in you. This is the work of a personal testimony. This is the, this is the tool that God gives us, the church, gives you in order to be used to introduce people to Jesus Christ. We are to, we are to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in us, 1 Peter 3.15. But, but we're not supposed to be prepared to give a defense because it, it is a, it's a faith that needs to be defended. It doesn't really need to be defended, but rather to be used, a declaration to be used by God to turn hearts to Christ. In other words, be confident. Be confident in your self-knowledge already of who Jesus Christ is. And as you, as you turn to someone who trusts you, you turn to someone in a time of need, and they've turned to you for some kind of help, and you turn, to them, you turn back to them and say, let me introduce you to the answer. Let me introduce you to forgiveness. Let me introduce you to a new life. Let me introduce you to a way to completely change who you are forever now. Let me introduce you to someone who can promise you eternal life with your creator. Let me introduce you to Jesus Christ. And because, oftentimes, without, without the need to give all kinds of answers... The person begins to trust you, begins to walk with you, begins to follow with you to, to see who it is that this, this person that you're introducing them to. So do not be afraid to simply declare, as John did, that Jesus is the Lamb of God and that he takes away the sins of the world, that he'll take away your sins, that he'll carry all of your sufferings and all of your burdens. Don't be afraid to tell people just simply that he is the way to the Father. You want to get to God, Jesus is the way. Don't be afraid to tell him that he is your Savior and Lord. Don't be afraid to tell him that his forgiveness and mercy is sweet. You see, that's, you, you don't have to have a, a, all these deep apologetics and answers to every question that people have. Just introduce, just introduce your friend to your other friend. Just introduce your friend who trusts you to the one that you've entrusted yourself to. This is the work of personal testimony. This is, this is an imperfect witness. Your, your, your witness will be imperfect. But it can be used by God to change someone's eternal destiny. This is how I came to Christ. From the personal testimony. Not a long 
defense and all the answers. I, I, I didn't come to Christ after I had all of the answers given to me. But because of a trusted friend introducing me to the one that she had entrusted herself to. This is the work of the gospel in personal, personal evangelism. The messengers are always weaker than the message. You think often, my message is too weak. And my answer to you is, well, duh. Of, co of course it is. You are imperfect. And your message will always be imperfect. You, as a messenger, you will be imperfect. But the message that comes through you by means of the Holy Spirit will be used by God perfectly. And God will use it. That's a, that's a personal testimony. Jesus says, I don't need a personal testimony to, to myself know who I am. But God uses personal testimonies. And I have another one to you. And it is the works of the Father or the works that are done through me that prove that, that the Father has sent me. The testimony of works. Jesus did not need the testimony of John, for he had this greater witness that he says, who was displayed by the works he sent his son to do. Again, verse 36. His miracles confirmed that the Father sent him. And I, and I think Jesus is already looking forward in this passage. He's looking forward to particularly the work of the resurrection, of his resurrection from the dead. The Father did all kinds of works, but culminated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead after three days. His resurrection would specifically declare him to be the Son of God. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes in that great gospel intro, he says that um, concerning his son, he's writing, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The declaration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is, a, is, is, is a, a proclamation that he, in fact, is the Son of God because it ties to all of the other scriptures and all of the other promises. If someone, if someone can be raised from the dead, if someone has power and authority over death in this world, that person has to be king of this world. If someone has the power and authority over everything, including even death in this world, then that person must be God of this world. And the declaration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ unto eternal life and then his ascension, of course, to the throne is the declaration of his Godhead, of him being the Son of God. In uh, John, or in Acts chapter 2, the days of Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out and Peter is preaching, he says, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. We are giving testimony. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And so in that, in that moment, when they see this great work of the, of the Spirit being poured out, um, Peter testifies, yes, and we saw him ascend up into heaven, having resurrected from the dead, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he goes on to expound this. This proves, this is a testimony that Jesus is in fact God. Paul will use the same kind of argument in 1 Corinthians 15 as he talks about our resurrection, the resurrection of all things, but begins by talking about the first fruit, the first resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Why does he throw that little, those little phrases in there, according to the Scriptures? Because it wasn't haphazard. This wasn't a haphazard, last-minute decision on God the Father's part. Anyone who studies the Scriptures 
Anyone who looks at the scriptures can see that this is exactly what God had promised that he would do. The plan had been set all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, given to humans, and had been de determined by God before eternity passed. And anyone who reads through the scriptures can see that this is pointing to a fact that Jesus, was going, Jesus would die, that the Son of God would die, that he would be raised from the dead, that he would ascend to the right hand of the Father, and that he would rule over all the world for eternal life. Our personal testimonies, then, and defense of the gospel may be imperfect, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ was perfect and completely true. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the perfect declaration of him being the Son of God, uh, of him being God, of him having all power and authority over death, of him being one who can uh, forgive sins, okay? There, there is no better testimony. There's no better witness. It's perfect. Now, here's what's interesting, though. Even though it's perfect, it remained unconvincing to some then and now. There wasn't enough. So you have our imperfect testimony of men. You have the perfect testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it still doesn't save. So we should pause here and consider for a moment who we are, what, what, what people are. There's a, one, of the, one of the most arrogant declarations, I think, for a person to make is to say that they're an atheist, an atheist. They, they don't believe there is a God. There is no God. This puny little person in all of the galaxies of all of the universe, right, is sure that there is no God anywhere to be found. Really? How do you know that there is gold in Alaska? How would I prove to you that there's gold in Alaska? Well, it's easy. All i got to do is go and dig in Alaska until I find some gold, and then I, there it is. I, how do I prove to you there's no gold anywhere in Alaska? Well, I have to go all through Alaska, dig all of Alaska, all the way across, and all the way down in order to prove that there's no gold in Alaska, which would take a long time. How long would it take to prove there's no God anywhere in the universe, visible or invisible? It is a, it is a, it's, a, it's an arrogant or ignorant declaration to say that one is an atheist. Really, really be honest with yourself. You, you're an agnostic at, at best. And an agnostic, so an atheist, an atheist, is one who doesn't believe no God. An agnostic, agnostic, is one who does not know, who says, I don't know if there's a God. That's at least a little more honest. I don't know if there's a God. Well, there's actually two kinds of agnostics. There's really two kinds of agnostics if you boil them down. There's an, ag an honest agnostic and a dishonest agnostic. An honest agnostic is troubled and searching. He wants to know if there is a God. He longs. He longs for a God. He longs for some answers. And he knows he's not on solid ground. He knows that, that his worldview doesn't work. He knows it's collapsing around him. He knows and, and he wants to find these answers. He is, he is the type of person who is ripe for the gospel. He is that white harvest that Jesus referred to. He is that one that's ready to hear. Jesus is Lord. He's your answer. The, the other agnostic is using his uncertainty and his questions to hide from Christ, to fight off the testimonies around him, and to keep himself on the throne of his life. You, you, you've experienced this before. You're talking to somebody about the gospel, and you're answering one question, and before you finish your sentence, another question is piled on you from another, from another area, and then another question, and then I, I just I can't believe, and 
And you realize this person isn't really honestly seeking answers. He's using questions to hide something, to hide something. He's not really coming clean himself in that, in that looking. He shifts the blame, in fact, of unbelief off of himself and on God. It's not my fault I don't believe in God. I mean, if, if, if God was real, why doesn't he just like appear right here now in front of me? Or, you know, uh, why don't you just write, he just could write something in the sky, and, and then I would know he was God. See, I'll give him a chance. See, he didn't. And so he put the blame on God instead of on himself. Hear the words of Jesus here as he speaks to these kinds of agnostics who don't really believe, don't know whether to believe that Jesus is God. They're agnostics in that way. And he says, well, this is why you don't know. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Verse 40. You're not willing to come to me that you may have life. It is not that he cannot see the light, this agnostic. It is that he hates the light. John 3. Jesus talked about this. Uh, Actually, John, I think, John is making commentary on this in John chapter 3. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. He does not believe because he does not want to believe. He does not believe because he does not want to believe. It doesn't matter how convincing the argument is. It doesn't matter how perfect the testimony is. This agnostic does not have an evidence problem. He has a moral problem. Do you see that? He does not have an evidence problem. He has a moral problem. He loves the darkness rather than the light. He does not want to step into the light. He wants to ask questions about the light. He wants to blind himself from the light. He wants to barricade himself from the light. He doesn't want to walk in the light, even though he's saying things like, now, how do you get into the light again? Tell me about this light. How could I get into this light? He doesn't want it. He has a moral problem. And Jesus knows that with the religious rulers, that is what he's dealing with. The Jews loved the religious scrolls. They, they loved the fact that they had the, the Bible, the Old Testament, But they did so for all the wrong reasons. They thought in them that they would possess eternal life. 3940, look at this. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. What Jesus is talking about is this tradition that they had, that if they would just be in the scriptures, from the scriptures themselves, they could get life. They would get salvation from the scriptures themselves. One of their own. um, so, So they thought of the word like, kind of like magic words or charms or instructions to be intricately followed. The Bible gave this, this word, gave the steps to heaven, steps that they would be able to take. One of their own said this, uh, Rabbi Hillel, the more study of the law, the more life. And that if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. And now there, there, is, there really is some truth in this, a little bit. We sang it in Psalm 19 before. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. There it is. There is a, there's a sense of that this, that this is true. God's word is perfect, and it converts the soul. It goes on, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And, and this whole section of Psalm 19 talks about the powerful work of the word of God in us. It says, it's more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. <coughs> And so it can change, it can, it can, it can lead people, convert, convert people, can it not? But there's a way to twist the point. There's a way to use the Bible, there's a way to use the Word of God to shield yourself from that light. 
so much of modern scholarship is, is exactly that. Uh, people who study very carefully all the different uh, texts of the, of, of the Greek New Testament, all the different fragments, and then try to determine which fragment is, um, is actually the real one or, or the best copy from the original one. And yet, n- so many of them do not believe that Jesus is the Christ. They just enjoy archaeology. There, there it is right before them. There's the word right before them. It's not giving them life at all. It's not converting the soul at all. So what's, what, what are we to make of this? Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus said that I am the end of the law. That, that's, that everything that the law points to is, it ends up pointing directly to me. Um, uh, Paul found, he says, that the law was not life-giving in itself, Romans 7.10. The commandment, he says, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. There's a way to try to use God's law to bring life. Try to be better, 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 good, good. I'll give myself more law. And all it does is bring more condemnation. That's what Paul was talking about. Rather, Jesus is the end of the law. It's, the, it's where the law leads for righteousness for everyone who believes, Romans 10.4. And so any reading and study of the scriptures that does not lead to knowing Christ is evidence that the scriptures are not being read as they were meant. Evidence that the scriptures, um, if, if the scriptures are not leading one to Christ then you're not using the scriptures correctly. You're like a child with, his book, with a book turned upside down and he doesn't realize that he's reading it upside down. He's just pretending to read. Or it's like if you were on a, on your, on a road, you're on a road somewhere and um, you didn't know where you were for sure, so you, you, you turned off to the side of the road and you opened the glove compartment. There's two things in your glove compartment. There's the owner's manual and there's a map. And you pull out the owner's manual and you're trying to figure out where to go. Or the car breaks down, and so you reach in and you grab the map, and you're trying to figure out how to... You're not using these things for what they're meant. There's a way to not use the scriptures for what it's meant to be used for. And that's what was going on. And this leads to talking about the Word of God and the Word of God. I want to end here with thinking about just some things for us to think about. The Word of God, the scriptures, and the Word of God, Jesus. And the connection of these two. The similarity of these two. The the inability to separate these two. Look, they're both called the word of God, first of all. (laughs) Right? The father loved the world, and so he sent his son. He sent the word of God. And then secondly, the scriptures, the word of God, are the father's testimony to the same. God so loved the world that he sent the word of God. And the word of God is the testimony that God, um, that, that the father sent the Son. The, the, the Word of God, we are told in Second Timothy, uh, are God-breathed words, the inspired words of God. The, the literal Greek is there. They're, they're God-breathed words. They're the very breath of God. Let us consider then some implications of this truth, not just for the agnostic, but for all of us in the use of God's Word and end here. For every follower of Jesus, the Word of God. First, there is no true relationship with Jesus that is not a scriptural relationship. And there is no true relationship with Scripture that does not bring you to Jesus. They are reciprocal. Do you see? You cannot say, I have a relationship with Jesus, but I really don't like his word. And you cannot say that I, that I know the word of God, but I am not a follower of Jesus. It, the, the things go hand in hand. They go together or they don't go at all. One cannot have a full and meaningful relationship with Jesus and not with his word. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. 
You cannot have a meaningful, full relationship with Jesus Christ and not have a meaningful, full relationship with his word. That is nonsense. Which leads to the second point, which is just as important. We must, as followers of Jesus, be as loyal to the scriptures as Jesus is. But you say, people will say, I, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, I'm just not really into the word, I don't read much. Well, who is this Jesus you're talking about? And how well do you really know him? Because this is the word of God. And, and Jesus said, I've come to fulfill all of it. There's nothing you can't read in here that doesn't lead to me. And you can say, I can go to a lot of passages in the Old Testament that don't seem to me have anything to do with Jesus, right? Search the scriptures. Study. And come to know Jesus in a more deep and more full, meaningful way for the rest of your life. Layer upon layer, you will come to know Jesus more and more meaningfully, more and more fully as you study his word. Because we have to be as loyal, we also have to be loyal to the word as Jesus is. Which means that for us... There are no hard verses. There are no embarrassing verses in the Bible. None. There's not a single embarrassing verse in the Bible for a loyal follower of Jesus. Paul condemned anyone, even angels, if they distorted the gospel. Galatians 1, 8 through 10. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. <laughs> if, you, if you take any other gospel than the one I preached, then may God curse you. May God bring his damnation upon you. That's how important it was to stick to the word, Paul said. Paul, and, and he ends this, he says, um, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant, a slave of Christ. Paul knew whose slave he was and was loyal to his master. And was loyal to the writings of his master. Today, the Bible is condemned for being so archaic, so anti-science, so masculinist, so heteropatriarchal, and even now illegal. Calling sodomy a sin is illegal. Loyalty is costly. John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And then Paul writes in 2 Timothy, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. They persecuted Jesus because he would not bend from the word. He would not bend from the truth. And they will persecute us when we do not bend from the truth. That's what his warning is. Are we loyal to the scriptures? Are, is our first loyalty to the word of God and to the one who is the word of God? Third, studying the Bible with, with faith will hurt, which is why we don't study the Bible. We oftentimes don't dig deep into the scriptures because it hurts, because the scriptures are like a sharp knife that reveals our motives and the intents of our, our, our thoughts and intents and, and how fleshly we still are, how given to the world we still are, how much we love ourselves, our, our self-righteousness still bubbles up, and God's word reveals it over and over and over to us. It's a sharp knife that reveals, and with prayer, this is how God searches you out. So the psalmist who understands this says in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart, and he opens up the word. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, how is God the Father going to do that? As you read his word, as you listen to it preached, as you meditate upon it, 
He will reveal to you what you need, and it will hurt. Before the good news, there's always the bad news, which never honors you, never says, boy, you are really something, but instead humbles you. And that is, what, that is what turned off the agnostics Jesus was speaking to. Often the word seems unclear, and often it seems unclear probably not because it is unclear, but because you are hiding from it, trying to keep your unconfessed sins hidden. Are you willing to open up the word and truly and say, look, Lord, search me, try me. If there's anything unclean in me, deal with me. Deal with me. Whatever it says here, that's what I believe. That's what I'm loyal to. And finally, four, scripture reading with faith leads you to Jesus and not simply to truth propositions. Don't go to the scriptures like an academic or like a, and I don't mean to put academics down. We need academics, academicians. Don't go to the scripture like a cold-hearted academician who only goes to the scripture to find a truth because Jesus is the truth. Go to the scriptures to find Jesus and the truths that he has for you. Be careful not to look to Scripture to see yourself. I want to find more about me here. Now, you will find out more about you, but if, if you are intending, I just want to find stuff for me, I, I, want that, I want that little golden nugget today that I can just hold on to today. I, I want, it's, it's all about me. Then this will become um, a trite book f- for you in no time at all or something full of a little bit of sweet sentimentalism every now and then. Do not look in the scriptures, first of all, to testify for you, to you, but rather to testify to Jesus, your Savior. Find Jesus in the scriptures and then find yourself in Christ. And then the scriptures will speak to you. Psalm 25, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And on you I wait all the day. Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law, that I might see you, Jesus. For true disciples, this is the gift of communion with Christ as he opens the scriptures to us. In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus rose from the dead, he meets with his disciples, he opens up the word, and he shows them how everything, Moses and the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they all spoke to him. He showed them, and he'll show you. He'll show you, and he'll show you that this is the testimony of the Father, that Jesus is the Christ. This assures us, this word assures you of who Jesus is and of what he has done for you. And so, this is the testimony of the Father. One book, dozens of hands, and yet one voice, and he gives it all to you. Let us pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for declaring yourself for revealing your son, for the gift of this book, the word of God. Search each one here and search each one here with it. And by your spirit, open eyes to the good path to walk in, the life of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.